episode entitled Next Phase Africa, which is the title of this podcast, will examine six crucial factors that will determine Africa's next phase. These factors to be analyzed are political, economic, social, technological, legal, and environmental. This episode will be the first part of a two-part series of these critical drivers of Africa's next phase. Welcome. So, we'll begin with the political factors, starting with global politics. Africa seeks a permanent seat at the United Nations Security Council. Currently, there are five permanent members, namely the United States, Great Britain, France, China, and Russia, known as P5. This is a powerful organ within the United Nations system. It is primarily responsible for international peace and makes decisions of war and peace, and these decisions are usually binding. Africa, with its 1.3 billion people, is requesting a seat in this council. Many other non-African countries also support this move. Here is the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, on this subject. It is my deep belief that the biggest injustice that exists today in the Security Council is the lack of at least one African permanent member of the Security Council. When the Security Council was formed, uh, there were very few African countries that were independent. So we have today a Security Council that corresponds to a reality that is no longer the reality of today's world. So in a next phase Africa, we might very well see an African nation having a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council. This will enhance the influence of the continent and provide permanent representation for the African people. I think this move will eventually happen, but it's anybody's guess as to when. Now, moving to continental politics. Military coups on the African continent has been on a steady decline over the past two decades, ending in 2020. There, however, has been some backsliding in the past few years with coups in Burkina Faso, Sudan, Guinea, Chad, and Mali. In my view, I do not believe that this is a change in Africa's direction. I think that this is a mere hiccup, and this backslide will correct itself. But when one looks at the global picture, there is also significant backsliding in other regions outside of the continent. There's been an increase in authoritarian leadership and a coup, for example, in Myanmar. The U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, expresses it this way. I want to emphasize that democratic backsliding is not just an African problem. It's a global problem. My own country is struggling with threats to our democracy. And the solutions to those threats will come as much from Africa as from anywhere. We need countries from every part of the world to share best practices, to make public pledges, to hold each other accountable. And we need to show how democracies can deliver what citizens want quickly and effectively. When we fail to do that, people lose their trust in the democratic model. And that fuels the arguments that authoritarian governments make that their system is better. Americans and Africans share a yearning to live in places where their rights are respected, their voices are heard, their governments answer to them and deliver for them. 
working together, we can support democracy in our countries and around the world. As previously mentioned, I believe that the African continent is on a trajectory of democracy, notwithstanding recent setbacks. I believe this to be so simply because this is what the African people demand. I would be remiss if I did not discuss corruption under the political umbrella. So I've heard people say that uh, part of their reticence in terms of investing on the continent is because of corruption. The response is this, that there is corruption everywhere, everywhere, to varying degrees, of course. So too in Africa, there's corruption, again, to varying degrees. So we want to make sure then that we are not grouping the entire continent as having a very high corruption risk. Secondly, I would say that corruption is a dance that requires two parties, and it does take two to tango. You have the corruptor and the corruptee. These two roles are never static. So if you are a business or an organization wanting to do business in a country in Africa, simply don't pay bribes. Conversely, don't offer bribes. It requires two willing partners to consummate a corrupt deal. Some companies take the position that if we don't offer a bribe, and our competitors do, then that puts them at a competitive disadvantage. Then the question becomes, how much is your brand equity worth to you? And what is the cost of this reputational risk? The United States has been a leader in addressing the issue of corruption with the passage of the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, in 1977. This act prohibits firms and individuals from paying or offering a bribe to a foreign official in exchange for obtaining or retaining a business advantage. Subsequent to that, the United Nations Convention Against Corruption was adopted in 2003, making it the only legally binding universal anti-corruption measure. And subsequent to that, the United Kingdom Bribery Act was passed in 2010, which was somewhat similar to that of the United States, FCPA. An interesting thing to note, and as I understand it, is that the FCPA legislation does not target the foreign officials, but rather the organizations and the companies who offer bribes or make payments of bribes. This is a clear recognition that bribery and corruption does come from both sides. Too often, people point to a country or a region as being corrupt without admitting the equal culpability of those who come offering bribes or willingly paying bribes for an advantage. Let us move on to the second factor that is going to impact Africa's next phase. This is perhaps the most important factor impacting Africa's next phase, and it is economic. Before I dive into this segment, let me just state four foundational truths. First, Africa needs scalable local businesses and multinational corporations to generate employment and stimulate the local economy. Second, government must create an attractive, enabling, investable environment for businesses. This includes the creation of enterprise zones, special agricultural processing zones, industrial parks, and the like. Number three, African countries must stop exporting primary unprocessed raw materials and instead opt for value-added, semi-finished or finished products. And number four, 
African countries are in a race against time to create jobs for the minimum 12 million youths that are entering the workforce every year with only about 3 million available formal jobs. I hear a lot of very long-term planning as far as African development is concerned, but what I don't hear a lot of is short-term planning. Many African youths are frustrated. They've done what they're supposed to do. They've gone to school, they've gone to colleges, and when they come out, there are no jobs. This has resulted in the feeling of marginalization, despair, and this situation often leads to civil strife, conflict, or having young folks take the perilous trip across the Mediterranean in search of jobs abroad. All the while, tangible, practical jobs for African youths are being exported by virtue of exporting primary raw materials. One of Africa's youngest billionaires, and specifically from Tanzania, Mohamed Duji, explains why value addition is critical to Africa's development, progress, and prosperity. Not tomorrow, now. He has been successfully engaged in light manufacturing industries, notwithstanding the laundry list of obstacles that are always recited. He is a shining example of what Africa needs to move the continent from the goal of mere poverty reduction to prosperity achievement. Hear him explain. The continent is about 1.4 billion people. Uh, majority are, you know, less than 22, 23 years old. Uh, so there's a big pressure, A, in terms of unemployment and that we need to concentrate and focus on manufacturing so that we can employ people. That's number one. But number two, God has blessed us. I mean, Africa, uh, in terms of its size, uh, the opportunities as far as agriculture, natural resources are concerned. Uh, gone are those days where, you know, Africa should be exporting raw cashews or gin cotton rather than the finished product. So we need to do value addition. And by doing value addition, A, you know, you don't use as much as foreign currency that uh, you would otherwise use. And also you would, uh, you know, employ a lot of people. So I think manufacturing is, is the core, uh, I mean, uh, of uh, importance uh, for the African continent. One cannot overemphasize the importance of starting these light manufacturing plants or processing factories. And I emphasize light manufacturing. These are plants that can be powered by solar energy, which Africa has an abundance of, at least many of the countries on the continent. There must be a sense of greater urgency, and there are quite a number of very practical industries that can be started within 6 to 18 months. All of these light industries will be leveraging Africa's natural resources, for which it has a comparative advantage. The third and final factor that will have an impact in Africa's next phase is social. One of the major social issues is that of the urban bulge. These are situations where young folks move from the villages to major cities in search of jobs and opportunities. And in many instances, these cities are ill-equipped to handle the surge of migration, internal migration from the villages to the cities 
And that tends to lead to a number of social ills, an uptick in crime. When you have a large number of largely dissatisfied, marginalized youths, and this I've often said is a recipe for disaster, akin to a ticking time bomb, if not handled well, in a practical way, and with the urgency that it deserves. The high percentage of African youth unemployment and underemployment is causing significant difficulties for many of them. Idris Hussein, an Ethiopian economist, speaks to the implications of widespread youth unemployment. It has a wide implication in terms of economics and in terms of politics as well. We have seen, we have one of the largest migration into the East, Middle East and uh, European countries. And we have also this political instability that's mainly driven by the frustration of many young graduates not able to find jobs in the labor market. And from South Africa, Phila Prince Musutu, a youth capital campaigner, said the following. A lot of people, they become depressed because they don't, they don't find work. And then others, they tend to commit suicide, more especially um, young, um, young males, because they have pressure from their families, they have kids, they have everything. So now the, the, the whole pressure becomes a burden in, in their shoulders. So now they're like, okay, the only solution that I have, let me take my, let me take my life. These dire circumstances point to the urgency of the moment. There is no doubt that Africa has significant infrastructural deficit. But if we subordinate the urgent needs of the youths now to large-scale infrastructure projects, and I'm not talking about feeder roads or roads connecting markets, I am referring to large-scale massive road projects, railroads, bridges, massive ports, or having a 90% electricity penetration throughout the continent in the hopes that that will industrialize the African continent, then that might require a more practical and strategic thinking. To be clear, I fully recognize the importance of having the necessary infrastructure to support large-scale, heavy manufacturing industries. I also recognize two other critical facts, and they are that the African youths are not prepared and do not have the appetite to wait for a 10-plus-year project. And directly related to that is the real possibility of civil strife, social unrest, which will, in effect, put these large-scale projects at risk. Ideally, we would want to implement both large-scale projects and the value-added processing, the light manufacturing, leveraging new technologies such as solar power generation. So, in summary, the African continent will do well by this principle. Think big because Africa deserves it. Start small because that is the fastest way to create jobs. And scale fast because Africa needs to rapidly close the gap between where it is today and where it needs to be tomorrow. I hope you found this episode informative. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode. Please share, subscribe or follow so you'll be notified when the next episode becomes available. Mm-hmm.